Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter uh, 20? Uh, We're continuing our studies in the Gospel of Luke, and we come to verse 9. So Luke chapter 20 and verse 9, and we'll read uh, this portion of the Word of God. Luke 20 verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one uh, also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard, uh, vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own sacred word. They expected the worst. It was a Category 5 hurricane. It would be the second most powerful tropical uh, storm to fall upon land in the history of the world. After scraping the coast of Cuba, it gathered strength in the Gulf of Mexico before hitting the eastern seaboard of the United States. Warning after warning had gone out on television and radio stations. Politicians and meteorologists uh, were warning people in vulnerable areas to evacuate their homes Even the president himself came on television and pleaded with people uh, to get out of the way as quickly as possible. In spite of the warnings, in an apartment block in a small seaside resort on the Mississippi coast, a number of people gathered for what they called a hurricane party. This apartment block was 250 feet from the beach, but the people assembled, laughed at the warnings they received, and when the officials and knocked at their doors, they simply ignored them. Eventually, the chief of uh, police himself came down uh, to order the revelers uh, to leave. They refused to open the door to him, and he took a bullhorn, and he shouted up uh, a warning. He says, you need to get out of here as quick as you can. The storm is getting worse. A man came to the balcony drinking a martini. This is my property, he said, arrest me. They all laughed. The chief of police left, leaving the people to enjoy their festivities. At 10.15 the next day, the hurricane struck. It was clocked with winds of 250 miles an hour, and waves were 28 feet high. It was said that the raindrops were like bullets and lethal to those that they came in contact with. The 20 revelers in the Richelieu apartments all were killed. The only thing that remained of the three-story structure was its foundations, and the only person that survived was a five-year-old boy who was found sheltering under a mattress. All these people perished because they ignored the warnings that they had received. 
It's a dangerous thing to ignore a warning. To ignore a warning can have disastrous consequences. Now, the parable we're looking at this morning is a parable that warns us about the danger of ignoring a warning. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and he entered the last week of his life. He has provoked the hostility of the religious leaders, expelling uh, the money changers and the merchants from the temple. Uh, the leaders come and demand that he tells them by what authority he uh, had acted, why he was doing these things. He doesn't answer them directly, but he asks them a question in verse 3, was John's baptism from heaven or from man? They refuse to answer, not because they can't answer, but because they didn't want to implicate themselves in front of the people who largely acknowledged that John the Baptist was a true prophet of God. And so Jesus refuses to answer them. He says in verse 8, neither will I tell you why I do these things, because they had rejected John and his message. He refused to give them any more information. New truth is not revealed until first truth is accepted. And Jesus then tells this parable in the context of their rejection of John the Baptist, which in turn would lead to their, their rejection of Jesus, which in turn would lead to Jesus's rejection of them. And the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought a way to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them. Not all the parables of Jesus are easily understood, particularly by the religious leaders of his day, but they knew this uh, parable. They knew what was meant in this parable because this parable, in this parable, Jesus delivered a warning to them. This was the chief of police coming down to that apartment block and warning them to flee because of the impending danger. It's one of the simplest and most straightforward of all the parables, and it's hard to miss its meaning. And yet, like those religious leaders, there are many who do not receive this parable and uh, don't uh, listen to the warning in the parable. Now, the parable can be divided into three. We see uh, God's goodness, God's messengers, and God's judgment. So, first of all, then, God's goodness. Here's a parable of a man who planted a vineyard and went away for a long time. Mark tells us that he also planted a hedge around it for protection and uh, built a strong tower to, to guard it and uh, a vat in which the grapes could be uh, squashed in order to extract the juice uh, from them for winemaking. Now, that scenario wasn't an unfamiliar one to Jesus' listeners. The northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and even a considerable part of, the, of Galilee itself, uh, contained vast estates that were owned by wealthy property owners in Jerusalem who rented out their land to tenant farmers. What makes uh, the, the, this case so unusual was the general, generous terms that the landowner agreed to with the farmers. Look at verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, and they would give him, so that they would give him uh, some of the fruit of the vineyard. The landowner doesn't look for a deposit. He doesn't ask for 
uh, rent up front. He doesn't even collect a weekly or monthly rent. No, he waits until harvest, and then he asks for a proportion of the harvest as payment. He's extremely generous. He builds into the, the, the contract uh, a safety factor for, for the, the tenants, that they only have to pay rent on the basis of what they make. It's a extremely generous. They couldn't lose. The landlord was going far beyond the normal terms that were negotiated uh, uh, that particular day, well, in that particular day. Now, those who listened to this parable would have been very clear as to what Jesus was referring to. Israel repeatedly in the Old Testament was referred to as a vineyard. Psalm 80 and verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Jeremiah 2, 21, God says, I planted you like a choice vine. Of, of sound and reliable stock. And then most clearly of all in Isaiah chapter 5, if you turn back to that passage, you see it uh, so clearly there, Isaiah 5 and verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my so- love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of all stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then down to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Again and again in the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as a, a vineyard. And it's no, there's no doubt that the listeners to this parable would have understood that because of the uh, reference to the watchtower and to the vat that, remember, Mark picks up the parallel to Isaiah 5. In fact, in the place where Jesus stood in the temple, At the doors to the holy place, there was this large vine carved out of the doors that was peppered and studded with uh, uh, precious stones to represent the fruit, uh, depicting Israel as a vine that had been planted in Canaan by God. And just like this landlord, God had been exceedingly good to Israel. And what God expected from Israel in return for his goodness was spiritual fruit. Fruits of holiness, fruits of commitment, fruits of obedience. And so the first thing we need to understand and see in this parable is the goodness of God to Israel. God had taken her as a wild vine and planted her in Cana and blessed her with blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Every Israelite would concur with the psalmist in Psalm 73 and verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. Out of all the nations of the world, God had singled out and chosen Israel to be his treasured possession. He had passed by the greater and glitzier and the more influential nations of the world and chose Abraham and his descendants to be his people. No family under heaven had been so singularly blessed with distinguishing grace than the family of Abraham. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, Moses says, The Lord did not choose you, 
and set his love on you because you were more numerous than the uh, other peoples of the world, because you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loved you. He came to them when they were slaves in Egypt, and with a mighty outstretched arm, he redeemed them and brought them out. He led them through the wilderness. He gave them his law to guide them and the tabernacle where they could meet him. He brought them into the promised land and he drove out nations before them. God was certainly good to Israel. That was a fact that no one could deny. Now, there is no single nation uh, in the world today that directly parallels Israel, the Israel of the Old Testament. Israel was uniquely blessed, and they were the people to whom God's affection was directed and to whom God revealed himself. Israel was a theocracy uh, ruled by God. God was the king who ruled that uh, nation with inferior magistrates. But we can apply this in a more general sense. God has been good to us. God has been good to you. Can you deny that? The Bible says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. We, all that we enjoy is from Him. We have homes to live in. We have food to eat. We have families to care for us. We have income to sustain us. We have medical services to help us. We often complain about the National Health Service, but are you not so thankful in this pan, uh, pandemic for the NHS? I've been uh, to countries in Africa where people have been suffering from the effects of stroke and, and cancer uh, of, with no hope of treatment or care because they haven't the financial resources. And they just tell you up front that they're going to die of treatable uh, afflictions. Would anyone deny the goodness of God in that all that we have and all that we enjoy in this part of the world but not only that, can anyone deny that as a province and as a people we have been loaded down with spiritual blessings from the love of God? We live in a country where the gospel witness is in most communities of this province. You go to Spain or France or even Australia and you'll drive through towns, uh, town after town, with no evangelical witness of any kind whatsoever. I remember in our assembly meetings a few years ago, somebody stood up and said that Belfast was the most unevangelized uh, city in, in Europe. And I was sitting beside Richard Dilworth, who was the, then the pastor of Dundonald, who was going out to France, leaving the pastorate to go out to France as a, a missionary. And he was fit to be tied. He said, but Belfast, the, the least evangelized city in, in, in Western Europe, he says you drive through France, village after village, town after town, with no hint uh, uh, or, or, or uh, um, parch, uh, parchment of the gospel whatsoever. We, we felt that when we were on holidays in, in the south of Ireland. You, we were driving through all these small communities, and Gail and I would often say to each other, Hi, in the world are these people going to ever hear the gospel? Because there was no gospel witness uh, whatsoever. You don't have to go far to hear the gospel. 
in this part of the world. Christians are all around us. Gospel churches are all around us. They mightn't be as accessible as they once were, and they mightn't be as culturally relevant as they need to be. But God has been good in that they're there. And if you're seeking after God, you can find the gospel presented in those places. A number of years ago in a magazine, John Blanchard described Northern Ireland as the South Korea of Europe. He says, I know no other place in terms of the percentage of evangelical Christians. You think of the the Christian unions at our, our universities. And the, the size of them. And then you hear from others like, like Rebecca uh, uh, reporting from England and how, how small her Christian union was. There, Northern Ireland, in percentage terms, has put more missionaries uh, in, onto the mission field than any other place in the world. God has been good to us. But let's apply this parable closer to home. I'm speaking to a people this morning uh, who are, uh, uh, have had privileges parallel to the people of Israel. Most of you, if not all of you, were raised in Christian homes, and you've been raised in the gospel since your infancy. You've been fed and the gospel, taught the gospel, instructed in the gospel until the gospel's running out of your ears. Your earliest memory is of your mom and dad reading to you and teaching you from the Bible. In many of the homes that you were brought up in, that the the Word of God was as every bit as much part of your morning routine as the cornflakes at your uh, at breakfast. You have sat under the gospel. You have been taught the gospel. You know the gospel. If I drop dead, you could in your home turn round and, and finish my. Uh, sermon. You're not sitting in some remote village in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, wholly ignorant of gospel truth. You know that you need to be saved. You know how to be saved. You know who it is that can save you. God has been good to you. Good in a physical sense and good in a spiritual sense. The point is that you're still not saved. You've spurned that goodness. And in that sense, you're just like these tenant farmers in the parable, God's goodness. The second thing I want you to notice in the parable is God, God's messengers. Look at verses 10 to 12. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent yet a third, this one. Also they wounded and cast out. Although God had been good to Israel, Israel stubbornly and repeatedly turned away from God and refused to yield the spiritual fruit that he requested and he required. In the parable, the landowner sends a servant to collect some of the fruit of the harvest, but the tenant farmers beat him and send him away empty-handed. And then in an extraordinary act of grace and in a remarkable display of patience, he sends one after another to collect what is due to him. In the parable, they mistreat uh, them and reject them, even though they come in the name of the landowner. In Mark's gospel, we are told he sent many others. Some of them they beat (coughs) and others they killed. 
They treated the servants shamelessly and shamefully. Now, historically, God sent to Israel servant after servant, prophet after prophet, messenger, messenger after messenger. But just like these uh, tenant farmers, these messengers were rejected and mistreated. Indeed, at the he- end of Hebrews 11, we're told uh, about them. Some faced jeers and floggings, still others were um, chained and put in prison. They were stoned and were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. There had been a terrible catalog of rejection and brutality every time God sent a prophet to his people. Zechariah was stoned uh, near the altar. Isaiah, according to tradition, he was the one that was sawn in two by a wooden sword. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit and, according to tradition, was stoned also. At Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7, um, he asked the religious leaders, was there ever a prophet you did not persecute? Again and again, prophets came to Israel to warn them and call them to repentance. And again and again, Israel rejected and mistreated these prophets. Did they learn? Did they soften? Did they repent? Not at all. They remained stubborn and rebellious. Just read uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings. It's a litany of rejection and rebellion. God's great accusation against Israel was that they were a stiff-necked people. When a king defeated his enemy in the ancient world, the enemy was brought before the king, and he had to buy the neck. He had to buy down, and the king, the victorious king, would put his foot on his neck, making that, that defeated king his footstool as a sign of that king's subjection and submission. But Israel refused to buy the neck and submit to God's authority, God's sovereignty, and God's supremacy. They did their own thing. They were a stiff-necked people. They refused to buy down to the king. I notice the extraordinary patience of God. He kept, uh, he kept sending servants. He didn't give up. One servant came after another. Finally, in the parable, he sends his son in verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they free him out of the vineyard and kill them. What then will they do? What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? The landowner assumed that out of respect for him and in the light of his goodness to them, that they would at least receive his son. But instead of respecting him and receiving him, they decide to kill him and get rid of him. Their motivation is clear. Get rid of the son and you've got rid of the heir. In Jewish law, if a landowner hadn't visited his property for a number of years, or a representative visited that property for a number of years, the tenants then could claim that property as their own. And so these farmers realized that if we kill um, the heir, the property will become ours. And so a murder takes place just outside the vineyard. They kill the son of the one who had been so generous and gracious and patient with them. I hope you get the force of this. 
A week before the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus anticipates and predicts his death. He knew he would be rejected. He knew he would be put to death. And the very people, by the very people who had been so gracious to him, he reveals the depravity of the human heart, that in spite of God's goodness and patience uh, with people that he goes to extraordinary lengths uh, to win, they reject his overtures and they take his life and they um, put him to death. Martin Luther says, if I were God and the world treated me as uh, it treated him, I would kick it to pieces. Kick it to pieces. You know, people by nature are God-haters. If, if people could construct a missile that would blast God off his throne, they wouldn't hesitate to use it. But God didn't kick it to pieces. He sent messenger after messenger. He sent John the Baptist, and finally he sent his son, and they mocked him. They stripped him. They flogged him. And they nailed him to a Roman gibbet in agony. That's how they responded to God's warnings, to God's patience, to God's love. They crucified the Son of God. They crucified the Lord of glory. And you say, what brutality, what depravity, what wickedness. But if you're not saved this morning, you're doing exactly the same thing, and you're responding in exactly the same way, and you're displaying exactly the same arrogance. God has been good to you. Surely, surely you can't deny that. He has warned you again and again about your need to get right with him. Just like those revelers in the hurricane party, he has sent messengers warning you of a disaster that is coming, but you have refused to listen. And you have rejected those warnings, just like those tenant farmers. Every time God sent a messenger to you, you have refused to receive that messenger. You may not have mistreated them, but you have rejected them. One by one, you have refused to listen to what God is saying to you. But worse than that, worse than that, you have rejected the Son of God Himself. He comes to you to offer salvation, a salvation that has been purchased at the great cost of his own blood, and yet you reject him, and you refuse to buy the knee to him. And just like, it's just like you're hammering the nails into his hands all over again. Before he was converted, Martin Luther had a dream. And in that dream, he was witnessing the resurrection and the soldier stretched Jesus out on the cross. And one soldier with his back to him was hammering, just about to hammer the nail into our Lord's hand. And so Martin Luther, horrified in his dream, runs forward and he grabs the hammer of the soldier. Uh, and uh, the soldier turns startled to see who's interfering in his duty. And as he turns around, Martin Luther sees his own face. He was the soldier that was hammering in the nails. And if you reject Jesus, and by your rejection of Jesus, you're doing exactly what the crucifiers of the Lord did, putting him to death. Every time you reject the message, you are rejecting the Son of God, and you are just like those who actually crucified him and killed him. It's a serious thing 
to reject God's message, to reject God's messengers, because ultimately you're rejecting Jesus himself. So in the parable, we see God's goodness. God was good to Israel. We see um, God's messengers. Uh, They rejected God's messengers uh, and God's message. The third thing I want you to notice is God's judgment in verses 15 and, and 16. Look at verse 15. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In this parable, there is not only teaching about the goodness and the patience of God, but there's also very solemn teaching about God's judgment and God's wrath. The patience of the landowner eventually runs out, and he himself comes and kills those who have rejected him, and he gives the vineyard to others. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. God's patience ran out with her. They rejected his prophet, and supremely they rejected his son, and they killed him, and they reaped the whirlwind for that rejection. As I said in our last study in AD 70, Titus Justus, the uh, Roman uh, uh, general and his armies, entered Jerusalem and completely destroyed it, leaving no stone on top of another. The Jews lost their homeland, and the vineyard that was given to them was given to someone else. And until 1947, they were a people who lived outside the vineyard. God's patience ran out with this stiff-necked and rebellious people. Enough is enough, God said. You have been warned enough. You have rebelled enough. You have rejected enough. And now you must reap the consequences. You see, you can push God too far. He has great patience, but he hasn't infinite patience. And you can reject him once too often. And when that happens, God rejects you, just as Jesus rejected these these, uh, these leaders and refused to give them new truth and refused to speak to them about John the Baptist because they rejected John the Baptist. It's a serious thing to spurn the love and the patience of God. The patience of God is a glorious doctrine. He is long-suffering, but His patience is not infinite, and His patience can run out. People say, beware of the wrath of a patient man. I say to you, beware of the wrath of a patient God, because God's patience can run out. I notice the uh, listeners to the parable know exactly what Jesus is saying. Uh, Verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not. I think one translation puts it, perish the thought. It's really strong. Could it ever be that Israel is rejected by God and put out of the vineyard. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Uh, Jesus was teaching that they would be rejected by him. That thought to them was unthinkable. So Jesus gives scriptural proof in verses 17 and 18. But he looked directly at them uh, and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Now, interestingly, that's a quote from Psalm 118, which is the very psalm that they sang when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. 
Uh, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic psalm that looked forward to the coming of Jesus. And that was the psalm that they used to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. Ah, says Jesus. You know also what's said in that psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. There would be a rejection of the Messiah. The Bible said so. There was an oral tradition that when they were building Solomon's temple, that um, a cornerstone or a capstone, it was a stone that was carved out that was at right angles um, with itself, um, that they looked at that and they deemed it to be too ugly to be used in such a magnificent structure. So they, they rejected it. But when it came to place that capstone, which was crucial because it held the corner together, it gave form and, 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 and function to the, the building. When, when they came to put that stone in place, that was the very stone that fitted perfectly. And so this psalm is saying that the Messiah would be rejected. That they, just as they rejected that capstone, they will reject people. You said it will never happen, Jesus says to these people, but it will happen. Scripture says it will happen. That, that Scripture is, a, is about me, that the capstone, the one who is so integral to the house of God, will be rejected. And Jesus is saying, you will reject me. But I'm the stone that is crucial to the new temple of God. And it's those that are joined to me that will form the new temple of God. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Jesus is saying two, two things. He says, if you stumble with me, if you reject me, if you refuse me, you're, you're, you're going to be broken to pieces. And ultimately, one day, that capstone will fall on you and crush you. I will judge you, says Jesus. So, Jesus says, how will you fare in the future? Depends on your connection. Depends on your relationship to me. If you're not connected to me, if you're not joined to me, one day you will be crushed by me. Are you joined to Jesus? Is He the chief cornerstone, the chief capstone of your life? One day that cornerstone will crush all His enemies, all who oppose Him. And that crushing involves internal separation from God forever. That's a serious thing. But but if that happens, you have nobody to blame but yourself because God has been good to you. God has repeatedly warned you, but still you reject Him and you want nothing to do with Him. Can you blame Him when it comes to the judgment for falling on you in the light of how you have treated Him? Psalm 2 and verse 12 says, "'Kiss the Son, lest He be angry.'" And you perish in the way, for soon shall his wrath be kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Kiss the sun. We mustn't see that through Western eyes, through European, European eyes. We must see that uh, through Middle Eastern eyes. To, to kiss uh, on the cheek was to welcome a friend. 
Welcome Jesus as a friend. Don't be like these landowners that, that are these tenants that rejected the servants and rejected the son. Welcome him. Welcome. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. God's goodness, God's warning, God's judgment. You know, we're living in the middle of a pandemic, and I get so frustrated with these people who deny the very existence of a pandemic and say that it's all a myth concocted by the government in order to uh, lay the, the boot of oppression upon a free people. I would, I would like to take you to a girl whose father I buried two weeks ago, who after who abandoned the family when she was 10, and after a, a broken relationship, she was just beginning to get to know her dad that was absent from her life for so long, and now he's been taken by COVID. I'd like to take you to, to um, my son, Andrew, to his brother and sister-in-law and his niece, consultant in the hospital, struck down by COVID and died. And that little girl of 15 years of age is breaking her heart over the loss of her dad. I'd like to let you listen in to a conversation I had yesterday with a, a man that I married just 29 years ago in, in the old Hill Street building. He phoned me in the morning and he told me that his wife had died. And he's breaking his heart. I don't trample on the grief of people and tell them that this isn't real. Show some sensitivity. Keep a hand over your mouth. Shut your mouth. Hold your wish. Don't trample on, on the grief of others. This is real. But maybe this is a warning. Uh, we're facing uh, a virus that can take anybody at any time. And I would urge you to kiss the sun, lest he be angry, to, to hear the voice of God, the message of God, even in this pandemic. And Mark phoned me yesterday morning. His first words were, Sandra's gone home. And I, I actually for a moment thought that he was talking about she's, she's home from hospital because she had been showing signs of recovery. But he meant home with the Lord. She's home with the Lord, and that is our, our great hope. That is our, our great uh, hope as Christians, that this, this life is not what it's all about. There is a life to come, and if we have kissed the Son, if we have hearkened to the warnings of the messengers, if we have uh, embraced uh, Jesus as Savior and Lord, then we can face an uncertain future with certainty and hope. Don't be like those revelers at that party who ignored warning after warning and then were destroyed in the tsunami. There's a tsunami coming. It's the tsunami of God's wrath, and you need to be ready for it. Amen.